0: This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Pleasure to see you. Um, A number of you I know, I've met at prior conferences or at your own church, uh, but how many are hearing me for the first time in your life? Let me see your hand. Okay, a lot of brand new folks. So an honor to meet you. Uh, Just quick introduction. Uh, My name is attorney David Gibbs. Uh, I'm a uh, way back 30 years ago graduate from Duke Law School, Uh, have been involved in ministry, helping churches, Uh, Here in Cary, I'm the uh, general counsel uh, to the church and to the seminary and to the media ministry and kind of what's going on here. Um, We work with churches all across America. Um, Our ministry is a little unusual, so let me just mention this quickly. Um, We are a nonprofit legal ministry. Uh, But churches partner with us, and that means they support our organization at $100 a month or $1,000 for the year if they can. Some smaller churches cannot. Uh, But then we become your general legal counsel. And so what that means is you have uh, unlimited legal support. Uh, If you have any issues within your organization, you may say, well, we need to do some preventative work. Will you help us? answer is yes. Okay. We need to update our bylaws, or we need to work on a child protection policy, or we need to deal with safety, security, or finances. Um, Maybe you have something where you're reacting. Okay. We have a parent that's threatening to sue us. We have a staff member that's demanding something. What do we do? Uh, We will be your attorney. We serve as your general counsel uh, in that capacity. And you say, well, we ran over somebody with our church van. Well, obviously you have insurance, right? Uh, But how many understand uh, insurance companies don't always do what they're supposed to? Uh, So we just had a, I'll give you a little story, uh, down in Florida. Uh, We had a church that was being sued for, uh, you know, $6 million. Um, And that's never a good day, right? Uh, Lawyers put big numbers on it. Uh, but the insurance companies were trying to debate whether they were going to cover the church because it was from a long time ago, and they pulled up an application, okay? And, and, I mean, this is like a little one-pager that a secretary filled out that said, are you aware of any issues at the church? And she just checked, no. So that was her answer. Well, the insurance company wanted to take that form from, like, 15 years ago and deny coverage on everything, Uh, How many believe that's a bad day, right? Because now you're looking at all your assets, everything's gone, you're wiped out, you're bankrupt. Uh, But we were able to push on the insurance company, and uh, they made good on all the claims. So that's kind of our ministry. I just want to kind of nutshell for you. Uh, If you're here as a church leader or board member, and you say, uh, we've got great legal help, wonderful, then keep doing what you're doing. But our church doesn't have that resource, or we would need some enhancement in that area. Uh, The NCLL is glad to partner with you and to help you in any way that we can. And somebody says, David, why as an attorney, do you invest your time, effort, and energy in the local church? I'll give you a real simple understanding. Uh, I believe the hope of America is not in the courtroom. How many agree with that comment? And it's not in the state house, regardless of what state you're in. And by the way, regardless of who wins elections, how many believe it's not in the White House? It is in the church house. And you say, but Mr. Gibbs, we're tiny. May I I say this real quickly, and and we're here at a large church, you know that, you're here for this conference, and very gracious of them to host it, Uh, but how many have figured out the size of a church has nothing to do with the greatness of a church? Uh, I've been in some churches that are running 20, and how many believe they can be great in the eyes of God? I've been around some churches that were running multiple thousands, and how many believe they can be not so great? Okay? Okay. I mean, uh, you can hold a football game, right, and get a crowd. You can hold a concert and get a crowd. How many understand there's a difference between a crowd and a church? And so we are honored to stand with local churches, big, small, anywhere in between. And uh, if we can be a blessing or help to you, please let us have that privilege. That's our heartbeat. Um, I was also, and this is kind of tying into our topic here, uh, the attorney for Terry Shivo's family. Now, Uh, Let's go back. I I see some of my friends. And by the way, I just had a birthday uh, last week. I turned 55. So to my uh, 15 over friends, right, we remember the name Terry Shivo because we lived through it. I was the attorney. It was uh, quite a big deal. If I'm at a high school or a college event and I say Terry Shivo, they go, who? Uh, Because, again, many of them were very little or not even born when it occurred. Uh, Believe it or not, Terry Shivo died in 2005. So we're coming right up on 20 years, if you look at the, the calendar. And and just to nutshell, I had the privilege of representing the parents, and they were the ones that were uh, wanting to keep Terry alive and, and to help her. And then ultimately, as you know, the husband uh, that was moving to remove the food and water and have her die, um, he ultimately prevailed. Uh, that case kind of caught maybe a... An early media cycle, you know, if, if right now we're kind of like overloaded between Internet and TV. You know, talking about lawsuits has kind of become a trendy thing. Uh, but back, uh, you go back 20 years ago, it wasn't quite so trendy. Uh, it started uh, with a guy by the name of O.J. Simpson. How many remember that case? Right. You know, who done it? And, you know, celebrity, California murder. You know, it, it had a lot going for it. And then there were some other California cases, you know, you look at um, uh, maybe uh, uh, Scott Peterson, did he murder his wife? You look at uh, uh, Michael Jackson, did he molest a child? And a lot of California criminal cases caught the the Hollywood cycle. And then for those of you that remember, Terry Schiavo popped on the scene. And Terry was a very unique case for a lot of reasons. Uh, She wasn't a celebrity. She was a working class girl. She was 26 when she collapsed. She wasn't in California. Uh, because, again, it's coming out of Florida, so it wasn't like the Hollywood or the media center of the world. And it wasn't a criminal case. It wasn't kind of the the who done it? does somebody go to jail, what's going to happen? You know, it didn't have that issue. And, and that case, kind of in a lowly little probate court, and many of you know uh, probate courts are where, you know, basically you deal with dead people's stuff, right? It's not a real sensational type, dramatic type court. But that case would... Um, capture the attention of the world. So some of what I'm going to talk about during this session is uh, tied into that, and some of you may remember that. But um, let me put you in a pastoral sense. Uh, you're ministers. You don't have to be the pastor. You can be a, a lady counselor, a minister of any sort, or just even a friend in the church. Um, this ethical issue of life and death, how many believe this is probably one of the most difficult moments that you get called into. Um, You get the phone call at the hospital. You get the phone call when the child fell in the pool and there's an issue and and they're not sure the child's going to make it. You get the call to ICU. You get the moment, you know, and I know many of you get to park in the clergy reserve parking and you're walking into these buildings and and there's a, a negative energy. It's a little sad when you feel the, push of hospital, medical urgency, and you're allowed back in, and lots of families, and some of them very sophisticated, highly educated, some of them just working class, utter confusion, not sure where to go, and they come to you for answers. And, and as you are in those, I'm going to say almost impossible situations, uh, let me begin by saying it is no easy Answer. Uh, if you try to just walk in with what I call, you know, nickel dime formulas, how many understand that's not going to work in these kind of situations? And what I'd like to do is just sort of maybe give you a framework, a matrix. Um, our ministry is available. If you're ever in a situation, we're glad to look at it with you, help you evaluate it, talk with people. Uh, but let's start with uh, maybe the spiritual side, okay? So, so let's begin with the spiritual principles, and these are real basic, but I think we would all agree. Uh, number one, God is the giver of life. And by the way, how many agree with that, right? And by the way, that's totally counterculture, because uh, most of the evolutionary crowd, even a lot of the doctors you're dealing with, it's all random and chance, and, and, and so they they don't want to have a, a divine purpose. And, and And by the way, since God is the... Giver of life, how many believe that every person has some value to their life? Okay. And, and the value is not in what you can do. Now, now hear me carefully. I, I have what I would call good quality of life. You say, well, what do you mean good quality of life? I can hear. I can speak. My, my brain works. I can, you see, I move. My legs work. I mean, I'm blessed with good quality of life. As I, so I look around this room... I see a room full of people that have good quality of life. You have, I think, most, if not all, the same blessings I do. The Lord has blessed you. Now, if tomorrow you lost that, or if tomorrow you saw me and I was confined to a wheelchair, okay, my my legs no longer worked, I could no longer walk. And it could be an accident, it could be an injury, it could be a disease. There, There can be a variety of causes But you could look at David Gibbs in a wheelchair and you could go, you know, that man, his quality of life has gone down. And by the way, you'd be correct. I mean, being confined to a wheelchair is not as high a quality or is not as animated, is not able to move as much as being able to be ambulatory or use your own legs. But listen carefully, and this is a big distinction. My sanctity of life in the eyes of God doesn't change. Whether I'm in a wheelchair or whether I am able to function on my own, I still have identical value in the eyes of God because he's given me that life. So maybe give you a second point. While God gives life, uh, how many believe God puts blessings in our life and God allows, we'll call them tribulations in our life? And so, again, if somebody says, David, I'm in constant pain. David, I I can't move. Like, David, my brain isn't where you, I, I understand. But how many understand God gave you that life and God can bless you with great health and great energy or God can allow tribulations into your life. And by the way, how many believe God doesn't allow anything into our life by accident? And so at that point, you have a little framework. But then let me come to number three. How many believe God and God alone should end life? Now, what we run into in our culture are a couple of things, okay? And this is really post-Terry Schiavo, and, and some of this is permeated the church. But, but let me give you, and I'm going to call it a lie, and, and we know where lies come from. They come from the devil, but, but let me give you this lie, because like evolution, it's now embedded in our schools, it's embedded in our media, it's embedded in our health care, it's embedded in our medical training. Let me tell you what the lie is. If you don't have sufficient quality of life, your life isn't worth living. Now, be careful, because we, we all want good quality of life. I do, you do. I mean, there's no, we're we're not in any way denigrating the blessing of the quality of life. But if my quality of life were to go down, that does not mean my life has lost all its value. And societally, we're now in a world, and and you need to realize this, when you're in the hospitals, when you're talking to doctors, when you're dealing with families, a lot of people want to start going into the quality of life analysis versus a sanctity of life analysis. Now, hear me carefully. You can play God both ways. Okay, I'm in a very nice room. Uh, This auditorium or this uh, classroom is very safe. But for a moment, presume, and I, I don't even see anything that could hit me, but presume there was something from the ceiling that fell. And all of a sudden, as it fell, it caught me at the base of the neck, and it severed my head off. Uh, how many of you would stand, sit here, and say, "Not a good day for Mr. Gibbs, right?" Um, and most of you would go, "Think he just died, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't live with your head severed from your body. Some politicians have tried; it doesn't work very well, right? But uh, the reality is, uh, if you lose your head, disconnect the brain." the body is no longer alive. But we possess the ability to keep the neck down going a long time. So if you were medically sophisticated, had the right equipment, you could run up here and cotter my neck, keep me from bleeding out, and you could hook up a machine that would keep the heart going, and you could actually make my lungs go up and down, and you could keep a totally dead body going indefinitely. Now, how many believe that's not the Lord's will either? And you would say, Mr. Gibbs, I mean, maybe to harvest an organ, if you want to do that, or maybe to, you know, do something temporarily, there could be a reason for that. But to keep someone on protracted life support indefinitely, um, that doesn't seem like you're allowing God's process of death, which I your head just got severed, kind of seemed like God's ready to take you. Um, and so to somehow keep the corpse going wouldn't make sense. And so as you are in these situations, okay, I always try to help you walk the people through. God gives the life. God allows good and bad things into our lives. We know that. But as we're here today, God and God alone should end life. Now, as you're going through that process with these families, you are gonna run into contention. Uh, how many believe families don't get along under stress in today's world, okay? And as the attorney for Terry Shiva's family, my phone rings every day. I'm the brother, and my brother's fine, and his crummy wife's moving to have him killed. You know come to court save them do something and and all of a sudden you start having people squabble over who's going to make the decision okay now let me walk you through here because this is really really important okay the courts since terry schiavo really don't want to make the decisions so if you have litigation-minded people As a pastor, as a ministry leader, you want to probably discourage that. Now, again, there could be instances, but very rarely is a judge going to say, let them live, let them die, ignore what this person says. They're going to try to figure out who has decision-making authority. Now, let me walk you through kind of the matrix. The number one person that has decision-making authority is the person laying there in a bad state if they're an adult. Okay, now if it's a child, then it would be the parents. But let's for a moment, presume it's an adult. Well, this person cannot speak for themselves, right? They're in a horrible state. They're incapacitated, they're on life support. They're gonna try to see what did this person sign ahead of time. Now, if there was one little lesson that came out of the Terry Schiavo case, it was, you know, go get a living will. Go get a doctor. And and by the way, I'm not a and and by the way, a will, last will and testament, those are good things to have. But a living will, and many states foster these, push them out, promote them, tend to be very pro-death in orientation. Okay? Now, if you sign one, fine, that's your decision. Okay. But if you look at them, they kind of read like, kill me, kill me quickly, and I won't sue. Okay, they kind of have like a protect the hospital, protect the doctors. You know, this guy didn't want to live anyway, let him go. Um, My personal prejudice, I don't like them. Okay, now I've never signed one. Okay, because I don't believe the living wills allow for enough information to be known at the time. Okay, so if, for example, if somebody says, Mr. Gibbs, do you want to lay in a bed and be hooked up to a machine and never be able to think again. Well, if you, if you ask me that right now, I'd be like, no. Well, here, sign a paper and you won't ever have to worry about that, right? And that's kind of how they, they sort of sell it. Well, what if medical technology, they got a shot where boom, one injection, brain comes back, you're going again. Well, yeah, I might want to take the shot, right? And, and right now that shot doesn't even exist. So I do think you have to be careful with these Documents that tip towards ending it, which is what most of the the living wills do, and they leave you in a situation where you can't look at your own circumstances. Um, here's another one. Maybe he's going to make it, you know, but it's going to take 30 days on the ventilator, the heart machine. He's going to be strapped up to machines, and David might make it, but he signed this paper where we're not allowed to do it. So now all of a sudden my loved ones, who may or may not want to make the decision, I'm always in a, you know, you never know, right? But if it's a, a spouse or parents or whoever's deciding for it, to be your kids, um, as they're there, they say, we'd like to wait the 30 days. Well, sorry, Dad signed papers. You can't. So I'm always a little leery as the individual. When you sign these documents, you don't have good information. You don't understand when it's going to be used. And you may run contrary to your family. Now. If you've got people, and by the way, um, there's people that are very pro-living will, okay, and they want to sign them, and that's their decision, right? They, I Just so they understand, you're taking away the decision from the people that are there, and you're asserting a decision that will tip towards ending your life. And so unless that's your clear preference, just be aware of that. And so like if people in your church say, Pastor, should we get a living will? You can always say, you know, you need to talk to a lawyer, you need to evaluate it. But just be aware you're taking that decision away from other people. Now, what do I like? I like a document that states who makes decisions in the event I can't make them myself. Now, somebody says that's putting a burden on people. Yes, it is. I understand that. But I'd rather let them carry that burden and have that authority. Now, you don't have to always name who you would think. Okay, so let me use an example. Um, you are a mom or a dad and you have this beautiful daughter and let's just say she turned 25 okay she's a young adult and she just met this guy and we'll name him Bozo (laughs) and she and Bozo get married and as they're leaving the church you're like well at least she's happy with Bozo they have a catastrophic car accident and your daughter of 25 years is now in ICU and you rush to the hospital and they won't even talk to you because you're, she's an adult and the only person with any legal authority that's now all of two hours old is Bozo. Uh, I understand that's not a great situation. Now... If bozo is godly and smart, he's going to defer to you. He's going to talk to you. He's going to be involved with you. But how many understand in today's world, sometimes bozos aren't that godly or smart. <laughs> and they're like, man, I, I didn't, I mean, I was going to marry her. And we're going to have like a nice life and kid. But I mean, she's looking pretty bad. And this is going to be a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of stress. Uh, how do I like wash my hands of all of this? And so understand when you do a document where you designate who can make the decisions, sometimes it may be, for example, a daughter, before she gets married, would sign a document that says, look, if there's any, you know, maybe surgical decisions, I want my husband to make these, but if it's any decision that's gonna end my life, I want my parents to agree. (laughs) Okay, you've got those options, okay? Now, you say, I've been married for 40 years, my wife's a great lady, she's godly, I totally trust her, different fact pattern, right? You probably want her fully empowered to make decisions. But if you're on a third marriage and your first two wives wanted to kill you, you might (laughs) want to think about it, okay? You might be a little harder to be around. And I'm being a little facetious, but my point is, you need to be thinking about who do you want to make these decisions, and you can tear it. You can tear it where you say, if it's a decision that's going to end my life, I want my pastor to sign off. I want my best friend to sign off. I want my business partner to sign off. You can put an additional person in the mix that may not have any conflict of interest. Now, you say, what's a conflict of interest? Well, I mean, if you have any means and your spouse ends your life, she just inherited all your means. And, and again, she may be a noble, wonderful person, but... Just make sure that you're comfortable with who has the decision-making authority in the mix. So whenever you get into these situations and you're counseling the family, step one is figure out who the decision-maker is, right? Okay, And a lot of times that's the spouse. Now, it it can be weirder, okay, because uh, how many figured out a bunch of these people live together and don't get married? Okay, it's not the girlfriend. It's not the live-in. It's the legally married spouse, okay? If that person doesn't exist, then it starts reverting to children if they're adults. So, and again, it can be a little different state to state, but generally speaking, you gotta find out who is the decision maker. Now, if the person has left a document and the document spells out, I want oldest daughter to be decision maker, she's the one. Now, you say, she's pro-deaf. Rest of the family, pro-life. Well, the court will never overturn that document and ultimately the decision of the daughter. So what you're going to have to do is encourage the family to, if you will, lobby, talk with, hold meetings, negotiate, whatever you can do with the decision maker. And so try as best you can in these situations to de-escalate tension. Okay? Okay. So they say, oldest sister is pro-death, and she's ungodly, had not been to church, I think she's an alcoholic, and sometimes the typical pastoral response, that's horrible, that's evil, we should stop her. Okay, be careful. She has all the decision-making authority. Now, was it a smart move for now disabled mom to have put this person in charge? Probably not, but she did it, okay? So what you're going to have to recognize is if you're going to help this family work through these issues, they're going to have to, if you will, work through the decision maker. So understand the principles, but then on the legal side, you have to understand who has decisional authority. Now, here's another fact that I want to put in as you counsel and work with people. Be careful what the doctors say. Um, I'm pro-doctor, please hear me. My son's uh, in his fourth year at Ohio State Medical School. I'm alive today because of surgeons as a child. I respect doctors, I hold them in high esteem, so these comments are not in any way to be denigrating to the profession. But they've been taught differently than before. And you gotta be careful what questions are asked. Okay, if you say, will my child survive this? They may say, yes, statistically, 80, 90%, your child may survive this event. If you say, is my child gonna survive this and be healthy? I'm gonna understand they're gonna turn around and say, there's almost a 0% chance of your child surviving this and having any quality of life and restored back, you know, and they will start to give you all the quality of life analyses. You know, they're going to need help feeding. They're not going to be able to use the bed. And they're going to make it almost like he's kind of dead. So if your family is tipped towards caring for the disabled and helping, you're going to have to be very careful what the doctors are saying. Now, trauma doctors tend to be very rushed. They're in, they're out, they're highly paid. Um, Sometimes they get what I call a God complex. They're just used to their word and people listen and they pop in and out. And that can be very frustrating, okay? So sometimes a family will have to get another doctor in the mix, okay? So like if it's a child, trauma doctor says there's nothing, let's get the pediatrician over here. Let's get the person that knows this child. Let's get a doctor out of our church. Let's get a family practitioner we trust because sometimes you will need somebody to help advocate on behalf of the family. And they will start to treat the family like they have mental health issues, they're in denial, they just need counseling, they'll start pressuring you as the religious leader, You know, get the families to de-stress and they have to accept the inevitable. And, and sometimes that's the case. But a lot of times it's more of a medical dispute. Do we treat or not treat? Do we move forward or not go forward? And the family needs to understand They have to have some medical somewhere on their side. So, I mean, people will call me and say, you know, we've been to six doctors. They say my child's dead, but I can tell just by looking her in the eye, she's alive. Okay, well, obviously that person's in denial, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'm not saying that to anyway hurt a mother. I mean, she's going through the worst experience of her life, and, and she needs ministry, and she needs counseling. And, you know, sometimes you have to walk them through so like this mother, I would say, well, what did the last doctor say? Well, the last doctor said this and said that, well, what is that? Well, that's her blood rate and they're saying this and that's this and and the, and the brain scans are showing flat. And well, how do you interpret a flat brain scan? And again, these aren't sophisticated people, but sometimes if you can walk them through what the doctors are saying, um, and, and they're telling me they're gonna take my daughter away and. They're going to end it all, and 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 you have to be able to help them understand where they're at from a medical standpoint, but then also a process standpoint. I mean, I, I had a, in a sad case, I had a child that basically drowned and died, and the hospital was, you know, just like, absolutely, you know, this child's starting to smell, this is inhumane, <clears throat> we can't keep the child here, but the family was just in total denial, but actually then walking through the records and saying, can you give them one more day for their aunt, their uncle, for somebody to come to town? Can they have a, a moment to say goodbye? Can the pastor lead in a prayer? And there are ways that you can negotiate a little extension. But the families, when they're really dealing with denial and, and they're just in that fight, scrap, go mode, sometimes walking them through the medical records will be helpful. And just ask them, what does that mean? What, what does that test show? How do you read that? And they may not totally know, but it's a process where they begin to come to the realization that the person they care about deeply um, is ending their life or is past the point of any return. So as you're counseling through them, make sure you know who the decision maker is, make sure you get some handle on where the medical records are. And then a lot of times they need to be encouraged that they did everything they could. Okay, I will get, and I don't want to exaggerate, but probably 50 calls a year. I mean, so it's quite a number, where a pastor or a ministry leader will say, "David, this family—they've fought the hospitals, they've stood, and everything—and and they're just all—and they really, you are Terry Schiavo's attorney. You went to the Supreme Court. Can you talk to them?" And when I say to these families. You know, your loved one, a lot of times a child, but it could be a senior adult, is so proud of you. You know, they're in heaven. And again, that's if you know the faith. But if, if they're Christians and, and they are looking down and you have done everything you can do. Um, they're so grateful that you fought for every moment, every second. But now's the moment where they want you to celebrate where they're at. And that is a moment that at times, and certainly when it's sudden and, and you know, it was dad that was supposed to watch the kid and the kid ended up in the pool and dad wasn't watching. Sometimes there's a lot of guilt. Okay. There's a lot of, and they have to hear that they did everything they could and that will help them then release and let things move forward. Now, On the spiritual side, somebody says, you know, Mr. Gibbs, we're not sure whether this person is a Christian or not. Um, How many understand that's the most important decision you have for anybody? Mm -hmm. Okay. And again, if someone's gone, that doesn't in any way change what has occurred, right? They've either accepted Christ or they haven't. But I do encourage pastors, ministry leaders, and I use my thief on the cross analogy. Do everything you can to give them hope that the person knows Jesus as their Savior. So, for example, they're on life support. They're not demonstrating meaningful cognition. Uh, How many believe we can still pray with that person? And you can put words in their mouth. And again, I'm not saying we're changing theology. I'm not saying we're trying to say you can get somebody else saved. But you don't know what they're hearing, not hearing. I mean, the thief on the cross, I mean, said to Jesus, remember me. And how many believe he got remembered? It was pretty quick. So, I mean, if you are there as a pastor, ministry leader, and you say, you know, we want to pray. And and certainly with children. And, And by the way, how many believe that if a child hasn't hit the age of accountability, they are going to heaven? Okay, so there is a moment where you can be encouraging on the faith factor and, and let them have that hope. Now, you know, there's people at this conference that look really Christian, and how many understand God's going to say to them, Depart, I never knew you. Okay, so I'm not trying to change, you know, what actually means salvation and how someone's actually, but as a ministry leader, I encourage you to let them have every hope that they did everything they could do, they fought hard, and then number two, that that person is most likely going to heaven. And so in that vein, any way that you can encourage them on that front. Now, one more thing, and this is probably the lawyer liability side of me, and then I'll open the floor to questions. Don't tell people what to do, okay? Somebody says, do we do the surgery, Pastor, or not? Do we pull the plug or not? Do we? And, and I, I know that you're smart, and you're godly, and you know what you're doing, and, and, and you want to take charge, and you want to lead in, and you want to say, here's what we need to do, but I would caution, okay, a couple of things. Um, whether you get sued or not, okay, how do I understand people can turn on you? Yeah, Pastor told me to not do the surgery, and Grandpa died and I just, every time I look up there, I just think about grandpa's death and Mm -hmm. that they build resentment and other things. Here's a question I always like to say. Somebody calls my office and lays out a big problem to me and this person and that person, all this stuff, and I'll say, hey, pastor, hold on a minute. Let me ask you a question. Forgetting law, forgetting all these other pressures, what is it that you want to do? And it doesn't mean he's always right or wrong, but how many believe that's a very insightful answer? If he says, well, what I'd like to do is fire this guy because he's been disloyal forever, but I don't want to get, and, and so you know, okay, so you're really looking to terminate and you want to make sure you minimize your risk. Or I'd like for this guy to be restored to fellowship. I'd like, and, and they'll have answers where this is what they'd like to see happen. Doesn't always mean it can, but how many believe that's very good insight to have when you're counseling somebody? Because how many understand people fundamentally want to do what they want to do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you're sitting there saying you need to take care of a disabled child and you need to do what God would have you to do and you need to commit to, and these people don't want to do it, how many understand you got to be real careful that you don't become the one or you don't want to take care of a disabled kid. That's miserable. That's going to ruin your life. Your marriage is going to blow up. It ain't going to work. And you need to let this kid go. And how many understand Pastors across America could go either way, but the smartest thing you can do is give them principles and counsel, but don't tell them what to do. Things along the lines of, you know, have you thought through, you know, what this might mean? And let them tell you. And and you say, well, they don't wanna talk much, but I'm telling you, getting them to own the decision is going to be very key for you to be able to have a protracted ministry involvement in their life. Um, let me open the floor to questions. We've got just a few minutes before this workshop is done. Any questions on counseling, working with people, end-of-life issues, um, dealing with it, documents? Yes, sir, Jim. Um, the advanced directives, is that the document that you're referring to? Um, well, a- again, they call them different things in different states, okay? Okay. Advanced directives, okay, can be very um, directive in advance to doctors, okay? So as a general rule, they read like a living will. And by the way, people like uh, pro-life organizations put out wills to live, okay? Now hear me carefully. I'm not the biggest fan of those either because I don't want my kids, I mean, if, if, they, if I'm gone, head's gone, it's over, I don't want them to go, man, dad wanted us to... Keep alive no matter what. I mean, I, I feel like we need to. And so I always am nervous about trying to pretend you know what the future holds. Okay, what it looks like, what technology looks like, what healthcare looks like, what the world looks like. Okay. I'm a much bigger fan of who do you trust to make good decisions. And so they call them, you know, healthcare surrogate, healthcare designation. Healthcare proxy, different states. But it's basically who, when you can't make decisions, who do you trust to make decisions for you? Go ahead, Jacob. Is power of attorney, is that what it's called in some states? Yes, healthcare power of attorney. Okay, power of attorney, be careful. Um, there's people that will walk up to grandma, and by the way, we're <laughs> going to talk tomorrow about making sure the elderly and children don't get abused, but hey, grandma, just sign a power of attorney, and this will let me talk to your doctor, but it's a full financial power of attorney, and all of a sudden, grandma's bank account, and house, and everything's disappearing, and and grandson's running off with all the assets, okay? So there's what we'll call general or financial power, and then there's a very limited healthcare power. Two different things, things. and one more thing, um, just to put in the document, I always like them to trigger, okay? So let's use... I have to be deemed incapacitated, okay? So I have an older daughter, trust her implicitly, trust all four of my kids, I'm blessed, they're good kids. But if I say older daughter who lives by me is gonna be the one to make these decisions, but I don't want her to decide until I can't decide. Okay, so if it's I'm gonna surgery on my leg or not, that's my decision. So remember, all of these are as long as you can make your own decisions. Now, they get a little slippery. Uh, How many understand as people get older is it dementia? Is it will? Is it what? Okay, so I, I get the slippery slope, and that's why some of these need to be maybe updated periodically. So again, if I was 80 years old and I'm sharp as a whip, but I would still sign a healthcare decision maker that, you know, I trust her. Let her have full decision because I just don't want any questions as to whether I'm all there, half there, part there. You know, because those can get uh, difficult to sort out. Anyway, I don't want to keep you long. Yes, sir. Fire away. Can a family or a spouse or someone, a child like you mentioned, ever face legal liability for not doing enough where perhaps the person can't speak for themselves and they, for whatever reason or combination, they say, we're cutting this off right here? Answer is no. It's almost fully protected. The only liable organization would be the healthcare providers. But if the healthcare providers are willing to do it, the decision makers have almost zero liability. And and I don't say that good or bad, it's just the way it is. So if you say, um, you know, a spouse prematurely took the ventilator off dad and the kids are upset and they go to court, no case. Now, if a hospital, you know, messed up and took the ventilator off the wrong person, there can be liability to the health care providers. They have to do their job correctly. But to the decision maker, they're almost immune from any type of personal liability. Yes, sir. Tom. I'm not asking you to make decisions for the pastors, but it sounds like a lot of things we're going to face are decisions that have uh, already been made. Uh, do you know of any pastors or churches who have... Started educating some of their uh, Huge. congregants on the social let, let me say this. Most your people have no paperwork. Okay. I, I'm going to give you stats pretty close to accurate. You can Google and make sure I'm totally accurate. Fifty and under, 70% of people in America have no future documents, state planning or medical. Okay. Fifty or over, it's about 50-50. Some do, some don't. Um. The rich, which most churches are more working class, tend to have more documents than the working class or below. Okay? So, statistically, I would say the vast majority of your church will not have any paperwork. Okay, now, what can you do? A couple things. I would encourage them, even from young on, to have some written paperwork to protect their children. Okay? So, for example, somebody says, I'm poor and I just got bills, hate to leave those to anybody. But if you have any kids, the law says you and your wife can decide, you and the mom of the child, can decide where um, those kids go. So if you have unchristian family or if you want to. So very important. Um, Also assets. I mean, you hate to leave all your assets if your kids are drug addicts and you hate to see them just, you know, squander the money, hurt themselves. Um, Lots of people say, I want to leave some stuff to the church. You don't necessarily do it self-interestedly, but you at least let people know it's an option. Right. That they could remember the church. They could leave money to the church if they choose to. Again, so I do think ministries that are savvy, um, at least with their senior adults, try to encourage conversation, um, maybe have some meetings on it. Uh, the young people, just let them know there is an opportunity where this can be a help to you. Then on the healthcare front. Yes, those documents are things as generally as people get older, very rarely do 20 year olds go. I've got my health care. Circuit document right here. But if I was, I mean, let me explain, when I'm a dad and my daughter gets married, yeah, I was kind of interested in making sure I wasn't left out if something happened tragically. And I'm blessed, there are good health, no accidents, no injuries. But there are moments where, even as a pastor, doing a wedding, You may say to a young lady, hey, you know, you might want to make sure you have a document just to protect your parents. God forbid anything happens. Not trying to be macabre or dark, but the point is that does, um, you know, give you some opportunities to encourage. If they go, yeah, 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 preacher, whatever, well, you know, okay, then you did what you could do, right? You can't, again, make them and certainly don't feel any pressure to do so, but I would encourage them to think about those moments. And as a pastor, ministry leader, you have that opportunity. I don't want to cut it short. Any final? Oh yes, ma'am, you're it. What is the difference, you know, with your health care power attorney, power attorney guardianship of an incompetent adult? Does that give you power to make all the decisions of everything for them? Depends. All right, let me go very quick, great question. All right, and I want everybody to hear me. If somebody's permanently incapacitated, okay. Um, If they're under 18, generally, biological mom and dad can call the shots, okay, so Down Syndrome, special needs, that type deal. Um, But what happens when they turn 18, technically, they're an adult, but they're not an adult. So what you're supposed to do, and and many families do this, is you go get guardianship. Guardianship is where you file with a court, okay, and by the way, you can do this for older relatives also. You say, this person is no longer able to care for themselves and we need to have full legal authority. Uh, Sometimes it's difficult. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Uh, Mom, who's half there but not all there. Okay, and you gotta go get guardianship, you gotta get a doctor to back you up. But then, I mean, they're gonna take away mom's driver's license, that's gonna tick off mom. They're gonna tell mom she can't date or marry because she doesn't have any judgment. That's gonna tick off if she's doing things, you know, um, she can't manage her money. I mean, so I'm just letting you know, it's a tough world. Okay, when you get into guardianship, you have to prove that this person lacks capacity. You have to have doctors back it up. Then the judge, the court, appoints you or whomever as, uh, there's two types of guardians, guardian of the person, where do they live, what doctors do they see, guardians of the money, what do they do? Sometimes it's the same person, again. And so, at that point, those people generally every six months have to report back to the judge, hey, she's in this nursing home, she's doing well, or hey, she's in our home, special needs, she's doing this program, and the money, hey, she's got a trust with 100000 in it, we spent 9000 here's what it is, and the judge generally signs off on this stuff every six months. Now, if there was a relative, suppose a sister says, I think my sister's taken all the money from her disabled kid. Well, then the sister could file with the court. I want an accounting. I want to look at this. And so the court has a lot of authority in guardianship. So just understand, guardianship is not where the person did it. It's where the court did it to alleviate a need or a crisis. All right. How many say I learned at least? Brother Allen, do be our last one. Fire away. Do you have any comment on when someone's dying on hospice? All right. uh, the ethics of, I had my mom die last year. My dad died about a month ago. And my whole family, our siblings, we were all in lockstep with it, with everybody in making those decisions. But in both situations, we felt hospice was very helpful in the situation. But also, we also, in both situations, pushing. felt like they were very much pushing to get mom and dad to die quickly as opposed to just letting things work. Any thoughts, sir? Yes. I will say this. Okay. Hospice runs the gamut. Okay. And, and I want to say this. In your area, there will be some hospice that are more traditional. Let it take its time. And then there will be some hospices that, I mean, I've seen people, I've met people that were playing checkers and doing great and dead two days later. And do they murder the people? No. Do they tweak the morphine? Do they speed it up? Do they have some ways to juice the death process? Okay, and the answer is yes. So as a ministry leader, I encourage you to get to know the hospices in your area. Try to figure out what the dynamic is, and then really decide is it the right solution for certain families? Now, again, you had a good experience in the sense of they were kind, they were prayerful, they were helpful, and and they do try to involve ministers. So, I mean, hospice by its definition is to minister to the families, but they do have a predisposition to speed it up a little bit, okay? And if that's bothersome to families, which sometimes it is, because they're going to be like, Grandpa looked pretty good. And, oh. and, and I'm not saying, again, they're not going in there and putting a pillow over their head, but they do have the medical cocktails to make it happen a little quicker. And so just know the hospices that you're dealing with. And uh, again, I, I think they're going to want this room. So thank you for coming. Thank, thank, you. thank you for thank being you. here. And uh, our pleasure to serve you. And you all have a great rest of your conference. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.